Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs, opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. Today I am with Tom Blomfield. Tom, you're the CEO of Monzo. I'm a fan, I'm a customer, so thank you very much for, for joining us today. Thank you. Um, one of the things we always like to sort of start with is, you know, you're the CEO of a bank. I'm pretty sure that wasn't what you planned to be when you were a little boy. So what was it you kind of expected to grow up to be? I think a lawyer. I think it's sort of a, a barrister, yeah. My, um, I think my dad, I remember very clearly my dad telling me when I was about seven years old that I should go to Oxford and study law and become a barrister. I, you know, I did. I went to Oxford and I studied law. And then I thought, you know what, I don't really love this, this law business. It's much more interesting to be running some of these businesses that are, that are in, um, in these lawsuits. You know, why don't I do that instead? Great. And, and obviously you've got, you know, this isn't your first startup. You've done a lot of things before this in terms of where we were. So tell us a little bit more about your, your history prior to Monzo. Yeah, so it, it started really um, back in about 1999. Um, my first ever job was delivering leaflets for a, an estate agent, Wilson Heal. Um, and I lasted one day. It was December and it was rainy and wet and I was 14 or 15 or something. And I went back the second day and, and sort of on my way to pick up these leaflets, I was just racking my brain, how can I not spend another day delivering these bloody leaflets in, in the cold and wet? So I went in the door and said, you know what, you guys, these leaflets are, you know, really, really old school. What you need is a website. Like this thing called the internet is going to be really big. You should get a website. And they sort of looked at each other and said, yeah, you know, we have been discussing this. How, how do we go about getting a website? And I negotiated with these, these two or three partners, I think it was three partners at the time, to build a website, wilsonheal.co.uk, which still exists today. Um, I built in HTML3 or something. Um, and had to learn how to build websites to do that. But it, that sort of opened up the whole world of the internet for me. It was amazing. Um, I spent kind of my teenage years building all sorts of crazy little businesses, none of which really ever took off because I was you know, also still at school and, and really didn't have the kind of the business mind, I guess, to take these ideas and actually grow them. Um, but that really opened my eyes to the beauty of the internet. And then at university, I started a company that went on to Y Combinator in 2007. I had to leave that time. But it was, again, an amazing two-year experience of building and growing and launching a startup. And then, again, um, Go Cardless, I did in 2011, we founded it. Um, myself and uh, my two co-founders, Matt and Hiroki. Um, and I was there for almost three years. Um, and that was my first experience with, with fintech. I think the, the word fintech wasn't yet around. I traced it back to like 2012, I think. And Go Cardless was a business that helped other businesses collect money. So it was a a direct debit API. So you could plug it into your app or your website, and now it's used by people like The Guardian and the government and a bunch of train companies and dating sites, all, all the way down to you know, small hockey clubs. It went rather well, didn't it? 
Yeah, uh, Go Cardless is a is a it's a neat little business, um, and I think it's yeah it's it helps I think I think millions of people a year now move money around, which is yeah pretty fun. So, yeah, it's something to be very proud of. So so I like the idea that you you got out of delivering leaflets to uh, by uh, building a website. What were you trying to get out of to when you decided to build a bank then? So tell, tell us a little bit more about Monzo and, and what, what really sort of stands Monzo apart in terms of what you're, uh, what you're doing. GoCardless was really great. And, and I, I did GoCardless because it got me out of being a management consultant, actually. <laughs> um, and it gave me this like grounding in how money works, how, the financial, how, how fintech financial technology works and sort of how money moves around the world. And, and actually, it's not really that complicated. It's been made very complicated uh, for, for various reasons, but fundamentally, the mechanics are not super, super hard. Um, I worked for a dating website for a year after I left GoCardless in the US, which was amazing fun. I spent a year out, which is where I met Jonas, my co-founder. Um, and that was my first experience of real consumer internet. It was an app and mobile and like real world service. And it was just amazing to build something that my friends used. You know, GoCardless was great. It helped you know, small, medium, now large businesses collect money and made their back office operations more efficient. But it wasn't something that I used every week that I was like, you know, I'd, ne- I'd never run a business collecting recurring payments. Um, whereas with this dating app, it was something that I could kind of, um, I could relate to. And so Monzo is that combination of you know, the financial technology, the regulation, all of the moving money around, times by a consumer app that actually like, helps real people, that, that sort of has a positive impact on you know, my friends and my family and hopefully circles around them to, to eventually you know, millions of people around the world. I love that. You met your co-founder by a dating app. You're like, that takes some explaining, doesn't it? You need, there's like layers to that you need to go through to explain. But oh, it's uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> and obviously, Monzo's going very well. You know, like you're, I think you've just announced you've hit 100,000 users. Is that That's right? right? Yeah. So we hit 100,000 uh, prepaid card holders. Um, we transacted about 100 million uh, pounds last year. Um, and the growth is still just phenomenal. I think last week we grew about six or seven percent week on week um so it's going well and that's you know that that is organic when we're not paying for user acquisition um well a de minimis de minimis amount really so yeah yeah i'm I'm sort of like looking forward to try and predict like the next uh catastrophe Mm -hmm. and try and preempt it a little bit but at the moment it it feels like we're in a good place and i think we've got a lot to prove but we're it feels like we're at the starting line if you know what i mean you know we spent two years building the bank, building the technology, getting the license, and it feels like we're getting to the starting line when we can actually launch a current account, start to make revenue. And I think the next goal really is a million customers. I think below that, with subscale, we, we don't matter. Um, I think in a million customers, the banks, the big banks will sort of sit up and start to take notice. Yeah. And, you know, other successes that you've had, you know, 96 seconds, a million pounds raised, you know, you actually broke Crowdcube at one point, wasn't it? That which is like, that's unheard of, right? That was very, very stressful. We had tons of sort of questions afterwards saying, you know, you staged that, didn't you? It's like, absolutely, we did not. And I've got the email logs and sort of ripping Crowdcube and you, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, it, I, Again, it, I think we sort of turned that round from a from what could have been a bit of a disaster to a pretty positive. You know, clearly a bunch of people were pretty frustrated and spent a few hours kind of clicking on this this website that was down. But ultimately, it turned into a huge sort of um, 
PR coup, really. Yeah, and absolutely broke the world record. And we'll be doing another crowdfunding round in the next couple of months, which I'm hopefully will, all the systems will be more robust this time. Well, hopefully I'll have to get in on that one then, because like I missed it, and you know I, I think I joined it at five minutes afterwards, and the, the you know the show was over. So uh, you know I'll uh, get in on the action next time in terms of where we're at. So you know of these hundred thousand people that have have, uh, have come on now, what do these people look like? What's your average customer? So it's really changed. I think our early customer was uh, male. They lived in London. They were thirty-one years old. They had an iPhone and worked in technology. They were me. I've just described myself, <laughs> which has huge advantages, right? It's very easy to know what I want. Um, and there's lots of those around <laughs> in, in London, right? That's a great yeah, you know, audience it, to go after. It's a sort of prototypical early adopter uh, sort of mindset, right? They will read TechCrunch, and our first thousand users found us on TechCrunch, and that was a great sort of seed. Um, it really has broadened out now. So I looked at the metrics last week with our data team. New users, are, it's still a little bit skewed towards male. It's something like 55, 45 in, in favor of male, maybe maybe 60, 40. But it really is rebalancing. It, it's almost 50, 50 Android, iOS. It's most outside London, not inside London now. Um, half our users are, are 18 to 30, but the other half are you know, all the way up to, I think our oldest users are sort of 85 years old. I think the thing that unifies them is, is people who live their life on their iPhone or their, their Android, their, their smartphone, I guess. It's people who get frustrated when they're told to fill in a form and go to a post box or wait on hold to a call center. It's people who expect everything to happen in a, in a tap or two. Mm. Uh, well, I, I, you know, I spoke about this to, to somebody this week. My, my mum's a, a user now, you know, and actually the thing that she really loves about it is the simplicity of, of engagement on it. But it's the things like security measures, being able to block their card temporarily that gives her that sense of control over doing those things. So, you know, I think like you say, it's, it's uh, early adopters to start with, but very quickly it moves, moves through, doesn't it? So what, yeah. what's maybe the, I'm sure you're a, you're a customer as well as a creator of Monzo. So what, what's the features that you find most useful on a day-to-day -day basis? I think budgeting is, is a good, I mean, the free foreign exchange I find personally really useful. It's more than a, or less perhaps than a, a feature thing. It's, I think it's somehow deeper than that. It's a feeling of visibility and control, and it's a reduction in that anxiety. Mm -hmm. and my money causes me stress, and I know for a lot of people it, it is hugely like anxiety-inducing, um, and I think having the real-time notifications and the budgeting and sort of everything in its place reduces that feeling of anxiety and just makes you feel like you're in control. And you multiply that with no fees or charges, and when we introduce a lending product, it will be squarely opt-in. Like you will not go overdrawn without saying, yes, I want to do this. Mm. It's that feeling that suddenly you are aware of where your money is and how much you're spending, and you have total control over it, and you can just make it stop. Mm. That's a, just a very emotional thing, rather than, you know, X, Y, Z feature. Yeah. Um, well, and that's, that's something that, you know, we, we work with lots of banks and you guys have uh, obviously made your roadmap available in terms mm. of doing it. And I, I think a lot of the organizations that we sometimes talk to see features and, uh, you know, elements of products that don't really sort of make up the whole. But, you know, the difference between what I'm seeing with the features that you've put together is how you've actually brought through that sort of human element to, to what we're doing. Whereas most digital banks are incredibly sort of sterile, you know, quite generic in terms of what they're doing. So how have you brought that warmth? How have you brought that humanity to, to what Monzo is delivering to customers? I think we have a phenomenal product and design team um, who I think care very deeply about other people um, and really want to make something that sort of helps people. 
um, starting with themselves. You know, we are all users of Monzo at Monzo. And so we are, every bank claims to be customer centric and they are invariably not. They're, they're product centric actually. And I think we are as cl- or striving to be ever more customer centric, which is sort of like, as a customer, how would you design this from scratch if you had a blank sheet of paper? Because that's what we have. And you can, you can really can do very different things. Whereas the banks, you, you get a person who's the credit card person or the, the mortgage person, they think in this product line sense, like how can I sell more mortgages? Not how can I make my users' lives simpler or less stressful or, or, or easier. Yeah, it's amazing how many people you talk to in banks who don't have products at the bank that they work at. Mm. You know, that's, a, that's an odd scenario, isn't it? Because essentially if you can't experience firsthand what your customers are seeing, then it's, it's very difficult to have any element of sort of empathy, isn't it? Yes, and they're sort of all the same. You know, you have your mortgage at Barclays or, or, or HSBC or whatever, it's, it doesn't really, there's no real difference. I think I'm right in saying every single Monzo employee is a, uses Monzo as their primary card, and most have their families all on it and all of their friends as well. Yeah. I think what we're trying to do is build the first bank with real network effect, mm. so that you're encouraged to bring you know, your social circles in because it makes the product better for you fundamentally. You know, Skype is a great example of this network effect. The more people bring onto Skype, the more people you can call. Yeah. And I don't think any bank has really ever thought that way. They've always thought your savings account and your mortgage are very personal, private things. Yeah. Actually, money is very often a social thing. Yeah. Well, and obviously, you know, the, some of the features you've brought in to that effect, you know, uh, peer-to-peer payment set up, having everybody on that is, is a, a better thing in terms of being able to do it. I've actually found that quite refreshing because um, you know, the people I've got in my phone work at banks and the amount of them that are popping up who are Monzo customers, that's quite intriguing. So, it's quite uh, fun to see that it's popping up every Yeah, week, I'll have to show you that list after this. So, <laughs> so obviously one of the things that you've been doing while you've been building the bank is the application process for a license. Mm. Tell us a little bit more, how's that gone? Oh uh, gosh, it's the hardest thing I've ever done uh, for sure. Uh, it's very, very rigorous. I wouldn't say it's a perfect process, but I think it's. I think the the government and the regulators have tried very, very, very hard to make improvements. It's a huge improvement of, of what we, we had before, um, and it's also, I think, absolutely proper that there is a rigorous process to this thing you know, becoming this thing called the bank because you get to take people's life savings and then lend that money to other people, and there's a certain level of responsibility there. So it is a robust process for sure. But I think, yeah, it's been robust and challenging, um, but I think it's left us as a business like in a better place as a result, you know, actually having to think hard about things like governance and risk. I think those, those are good concepts. They can be done very poorly and really slow you down, but I think many startups don't have that pressure to have a, a structured board or minutes or sort of an understanding of what their main risks are and how they're mitigating them. Mm. And I think being forced to think about that early in many ways is very helpful. Mm. And, and I, you know, this feels like a sort of a golden years of, of kind of challenger banks coming through. You know, we, we, it doesn't really feel to me like we've we've ever seen this amount of change within the industry, really. So we, you know, obviously with the likes of yourselves and, and uh, Tandem and Atom sort of coming through, you know, does this feel like the you know, the golden years of, of, of kind of challenger banks coming through. And, and it feels like we're really on that significant sort of precipice of, of change within the industry, doesn't it? Yes, but it's still early. I think it's still really, really early. N26 in Germany and um, New Bank in Brazil, I think are sort of a year or so ahead. And I think they're both pretty good indicators of where the UK will go as well. 
But I think we need to get to multiple challenger banks at a million plus customers to really say this is a this has now happened. Yeah. I think we're all just getting to the starting line. The, the race hasn't quite yet started. Yeah, it's like. And I see this week you've been um, there's been really interesting blogs coming out about uh, risk and uh, security and everything that's coming through. How, you know how much is the emphasis being placed on? traditionally things that haven't been the most sexy within some of the, the big banks, but actually, you know, really doing them in a way that actually gives you, I guess, sustainable advantage over some of those players. Yeah, so it's been our financial crime week. So we had a series of blog posts which are really, really interesting. And it, it sort of is the sexy area at Monza. I'm just sort of thinking to our engineering team and a number of people saying, I, I want to be on that team because they're doing, like, actually some really cool stuff. So using a lot of... Um, data analysis and machine learning to combat uh, both third-party fraud and first-party fraud and, and automate a lot of the processes that, that sort of take up the time. Mm. So we're really, really proud that we managed to reduce our, our fraud exposure to, we were losing a, a fair amount of cash in the early days, and I think 30 or 40,000 pounds in a week we lost at one stage, and we're down to often single digits now of uh, fraud loss. And that's, you know, rules engine plus then a machine learning engine, this really, for now, really effective. I mean, it's something we're going to have to continue working on to remain ahead. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a real sort of early kind of, I guess, center of excellence, if you will, inside the business. Yeah. And, and how do you, so, you know, obviously we, with lots of banks that we sort of speak to, we have a kind of a, an impression of almost like a Game of Thrones mentality in there of the, the kind of committees and the fiefdoms of things that are going on. Like, how do you guys set up? You know, we just didn't, we didn't get that impression when we uh, visited you recently. We are going through um, reorganization as, as any company that grows. What, what works at 10 people breaks at 35, which breaks again at 75. And, you know, we're at 75 now. And so you continually have to kind of refactor the organization, as Jonas, my co-founder, likes to put it. So there are a few principles we use, I think, which is we hire very smart people and give them a lot of responsibility and really try to push decision making down as, as far as we can to the people who are actually doing, sort of doing the work day to day. You know, Jonas and I and, and Paul and Gary, the, the four of us now, aren't really doing the work anymore. You know, we're sort of guiding and managing. The people on the front lines are doing the work and they sh- they're closest to the customer and the problem. Mm-hmm. And with the appropriate sort of training and context, they should be able to make as many of the decisions as possible. Yeah. So that's a sort of principle we try to live by. I think also um, having cross-functional decoupled teams is something that's very important as well. So not having an engineering department and a design department and a compliance department, but having a, a financial crime and security team, for example, which is made up of um, a lady who used to work at HSBC and some fraud analysts um, and some engineers. And they, they sit together and work together and do their daily stand-up together and, and sort of attack the same goals together using their different specialities and tool sets. So they can operate very, very quickly to react to new threats and sort of push out code or update the product or you know change the terms and conditions even sometimes, and they they can do that without having to go to other teams to you know get blocked on their six month roadmap. They have the capability in inside that team to ship code or whatever it is. So small autonomous teams. Um, uh, so we're, we're moving to taking the best bits of, the, of what we see from the Spotify engineering culture, for example. They released a couple of really great uh, videos a year or two ago on how they've kind of structured between uh, squads and guilds. And we haven't gone whole hog there, but we've, we've taken what we see as the sort of best bits for us. Well, and a, and a major part of, you know, most 
banks are trying to implement agile of some description, you know, move away from waterfall. But, you know, major part of that is usually decision making. So, uh, and to your point, you know, yourself and Jonas and Paul are, you know, not in the detail day to day in terms of where we are. So how do you empower those people? So how do you give them the ability to make those decisions? Especially in the context of a highly regulated industry, it's an even harder question. And with, like, to, an, uh, to an extent, with, we're still figuring it out. So pushing down you know, decision, figuring out who is the best person to be the, you know, the um, material risk taker, who is that person, and try and get them as close to the customer, and then make sure they have the appropriate training. So we, you know, everyone in the company goes through a, uh, effectively an A-level in banking now. You, it's one of the things you do in your first month or two at Monzo, and then a bunch of specialist training on um, treating customers fairly and financial crime and, and all, all sorts so so that these people have the authority and the the know-how and the specialism to be able to make the decision and I guess sort of not punishing f- f- failure that, that sounds weird but allowing people to kind of take fast small decisions and if one or two kind of go wrong if they can be corrected and rectified mm. actually that's a better outcome than than spending six months making a really big decision where you don't know the outcome. Yeah. So like moving pretty quickly, taking small steps so a couple of stumbles aren't fatal. Yeah. Um, Find out it's wrong after an hour rather than after a year well, sounds like a good idea to me. So. Yeah, so you know, that's built into how our, how our software is architected. We, we use these microservices where you can update separate bits of code. You can deploy certain features to only a subset of your customers. So you know, yesterday, for example, we uh, pushed out a spending report and we we trialed uh, it was a sort of a new style we pushed it out to a uh, thousand people first and it was broken right it, it said february not january mm-hmm. but a couple of people noticed because they were in that thousand um and we turned it off and went back rewrote the code redeployed it tested it again it's like okay this works now now let's roll it out to a hundred thousand yeah. so you can do these kind of stage releases so that the the risk of it going wrong is very low and the first thousand people are kind of opted in to be guinea pigs mm. How do you think the so the people that you've got currently, you know, the hundred thousand that you've got in terms of where they're at, you know, you've you've sort of almost curated people with the expectation of this change. You know, I've I've not experienced uh, as a consumer of a financial services product the level of uh, incremental changes that I, I see with with using your product. So. Um, a, can you maintain that? Because it's a, you've set a pretty high bar in terms of the the changes in the um, the new uh, capability, the new functionality. Uh, even the can you maintain the wittiness of your release notes on, on iTunes? Quite frankly, so so is this, is this a pace you can you can keep? I think so. Yes, and I think it's down to again decoupling teams in this microservices approach. We feel like over the last six or seven months, actually, we've slowed down a bit, and I'd like to, to pick it up again. We've slowed down because we're going through launching the current account. There's just a lot of work you have to do up front with a big regulatory kind of barrier, you know, getting our restrictions lifted, which means we can't launch a bunch of that. So you know, we're, we're trialing internally faster payments and direct debits and all those great stuff and seeing how we can add the kind of the Monzo like delightful polish to a direct debit. And it, it is possible, but we can't. We can't roll that out yet because of the regulations. So by growing the team a bit, by decoupling them and, and sort of getting that regulatory barrier lifted, I, I'd hope we'd actually be able to, to move faster again. And I think another thing that we have done quite well, but I'd like to improve a lot, is giving visibility into our design process. So we have a community forum, which is incredibly heavily trafficked by about 5% of our user base. And Hugo, our head of design, is on there a lot, and Tristan, who writes you know, all our great copy, spend a lot of their time there. 
and Hugo posts uh, sneak peeks of new features, which are incredible. You know, you go, you can actually sort of explore these uh, these designs and these prototypes and comment and feedback and say that you know, I don't like that or that, and it really does sort of change how the product is built. Mm. I'd like to bring those sneak peeks like more fully into the app so that you as a, if you're not a hardcore power user that goes to the forum, you still see that process because I yeah. think it's just delightful. Well, and it's and it's it's refreshing that that isn't a fan club. You know that that isn't a Monzo fan club for you because actually the the feedback that Hugo can get on some of those things is is real, right? You know the the actual action and the activity and you know you're getting real feedback to make changes to the product. You know you are, but but it's the power users, mm. and that's the thing we've always got to bear in mind. Sort of these guys and 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 girls are thinking about the product in a way that most people don't, mm. and so you can't. Some great ideas will come out of it, but if you just blindly followed everything they say, you'd you know you'd develop a product that works great for 5% of your power users and, and normal people are just like, whoa. So you need to get my mum in that forum, that's what you're saying basically, right? My uncle spends a lot of his time in the right. forum actually. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess changing tack slightly, we're you know, nearly the end of January, uh, you know, this year is the year, right? You know, we've got um, three or four banks, new banks coming into the market, all aiming, you know, it was reasonably similar at the, the kind of early adopters, I'd, I'd say, in terms of what we're doing, particularly in the, the sort of tandem styling yourself space. Uh, maybe Atom's playing a slightly different, uh, different game in terms of the uh, more product-focused side of things in terms of what we're doing. Who's going to win and where are we going to go? I think the two can coexist. So I'll take and, uh, Atom and us. I think actually there they are very real synergies. I think Atom, as you say, are taking the kind of balance sheet heavy, like, Get the cost structure low and, and sort of lend and take take deposits in and lend out and make sure you can get your NIM and just sort of do it at a much much lower cost of, of, of um, servicing the big banks. I think we are going the total opposite approach, which is very balance sheet light, which is all about data and identity. And those two plug in really really nicely. It's hard to see where it's hard to say now where Tandem or something like Starling are going to end up without having seen their product. Um, so I'm looking forward to having a play. But I think that kind of marketplace model supports a range of, of challenges. Yeah. I think it's going to be fascinating, right? We, there's so much, it feels perfect storm-esque at the moment. You know, there's, you've got the, you know, you must be feeling rather blessed. You've got the UK government spending all of this money putting a, you know, switching process in and uh, spending so much money now advertising it and getting people feeling comfortable that their money's protected if there's a license. And so, you know, really the, 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 the winds are well and truly in your sails to, to make this a, a fantastic year, right? Uh, yeah, I totally agree with that. I think a lot of the, a lot of the stuff the government has done up to now have been very mechanical. The current account switching service is a great example. It's mechanically easier to switch now. There hasn't yet been a reason to switch. But yeah, they, they provide a lot of those building blocks and those enablers so that someone, hopefully Monzo or Tandem, can come in and really ride those, those winds, as you say. But it feels like, yeah, pretty, pretty uh, interesting year or two ahead. And PSD2 and open banking in 2018 as well, I think, will just give that another kick. Mm. One of the things I, I spoke about a little bit this week to, uh, to, to a few people was I feel like the the differentiating point in this is going to be about marketing to a certain degree. I don't mean marketing in the sense of uh, you know saying you're going to do it rather than doing it, mm. but at the point you can enter sort of mainstream psyche for financial services. That's when that's when I feel like real wholesale change is happening. You know, it won't be when you've got one of these towers in the background with a hundred thousand people. It'll be when you know my mum 
or her friends uh, kind of on a day-to-day basis pulling this card out and not their HSBC card or their Barclays card. So I I guess from a marketing perspective, really, how are you going to break out of London? What's What's the big push? Product. I think it's product and word of mouth. I, I don't think it's marketing, or at least not in the traditional sense. It's not above the line tube ads, um, although we did try some tube ads. <laughs> they don't work. Um, it's, it's product. I mean, to turn the question around, how did Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook grow? It wasn't above the line advertising. It wasn't really even marketing as you describe it, certainly not for their first... 50 million users actually it was an amazing product with true network effect it's very very easy to sign up to and, and really gets you hooked in and so we're just trying to learn all of those lessons from consumer internet about um, funnel optimization about onboarding about making a seamless slick experience about virality and referrals like i love um dave mcclure's pirate metrics for startups the it's sort of acquisition or even above that awareness uh, acquisition, activation, retention, referral, and revenue. Just focusing on that funnel, basically, again and again, and just hyper-optimizing it. That was that was R for people who missed that then. But yeah, I love I love that as well. It's a it's a pretty pretty good one. But uh... so it's it's product basically that has to drive it, that makes people talk about it and use it and recommend it to their friends. Mm. I mean, something like eighty-five or ninety percent of our new signups come through referral. Mm. I think, to your point, we haven't seen virality really in banking, you know, maybe until recently. You know, I'm seeing people at banks posting pictures on LinkedIn, being happy they've got a Monzo card. Like, is this the, is this the start of that momentum of virality? I hope so. I think Nubank have done it. I think Nubank's grown. They've, I don't know whether they're at, a million or two million customers in Brazil have used virality and, and network effect as uh, their primary growth mechanism. I mean, I think they're, yeah, they, you, you measure K factor. Um, which is sort of for each user, how many additional users do they bring along? And I think for Nubank, it's above one, which is the holy grail. Basically, you have, until you hit market saturation, you just grow sort of exponentially. Mm-hmm. Every user brings another user who brings another user. Mm-hmm. So that's a really interesting, powerful mechanic that I think certainly the UK banks have touched. And we're, we're just doubling down on it. Well, definitely, it's a different approach to bribing customers to be your, you know, your customers as opposed to making them want it, right? Yeah, for sure. And it, Basically, every other bank seems to have this like price that they're willing to pay. It's about between 100 and 150 pounds. Mm-hmm. And some just say, we'll give you 150 pounds if you switch to us. And they're very upfront about it. Others say, you know, Tesco Bank, 3% interest up to 3,000 pounds a year. It's like, okay, that's a 90 pound bribe. But you're, you know, you're packaging it a different way. Or, it's a long bribe. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like, it just, I don't know. It, there's no differentiation. So you just have to go and pay, pay your users, yeah. um, which is fine. But it results in fairly low switching numbers. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, this model with a truly differentiated product um, will have a different result. Yeah. So, uh, changing tack slightly again. So, you know, you've got a lot on at the plate. You know, your your license is coming through. You're building the bank. You're doing everything that we've we've been talking about. I guess, what's the way that you stay on top of all of this productivity? How do you how do you maintain that day to day? I don't do any real work anymore. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> you know, I come meet uh, nice guys like you and do podcasts and, and talk to journalists and I talk to investors and, and regulators. But we have an amazing team who do the work. You know, Jonas, myself, Paul, Gary, we're not really doing the work anymore. We've got an amazing team around us who are really like putting in the hours, working incredibly hard and coming out with an amazing product. So that, I think, is different to anywhere else I've ever worked. Just 
hiring an extraordinarily talented team and then just delegating super aggressively. And you know, when each of those sort of managers get overburdened, they delegate very aggressively and, and actually it's sort of a great place to work and you get an incredible amount done. But as a result, I feel like I'm not, you know, I'm kind of a, a, a fake. I'm not really doing the work anymore, which feels a bit odd. Well, it's, you know, recruitment is the best policy for, uh, for kind of, uh, you know, productivity, it sounds like, which is a pretty good one. Yeah, I, I heard this thing, sort of this in startup circles, as a CEO, your job is to sort of make yourself redundant. And I did that, and it was weird. because I was like, I've got nothing to do anymore, <laughs> to, to an extent, you know, and sort of, you have to, you have to th- sort of consciously plan your, it's not like when you're writing code every day, right? You can just put your headphones on and for, for 15 hours you write code, and it's, that's a great day's work. As a sort of founder CEO, that's not something you, you should be doing, even if you could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's sort of thinking, how, how can I have the most like, highly leveraged impact today? Like making one decision a day that's the right decision is way, way more important than you know, cranking out code for 15 hours with your headphones on. Indeed. Don't tell Jonas that. Though, obviously. <laughs> Jonas writes no code anymore. <laughs> really. I mean, he, Jonas just has doubled down on recruiting. That's, I mean, day in, day out. Just, I don't know how many interviews that guy does every day, but like more than 10 a day, I, I'd guess. So to, to sort of close out, what's the, what's the golden rule? What's the golden rule you sort of live by in terms of your, your day-to-day life? I'm going to rip off Y Combinator. Make something people want, I think, fundamentally. Yeah. Well, it seems like uh, mission accomplished and I'm sure there's many more people to come. So uh, Tom Blomfield, CEO of Monzo, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.